Thunder, thunder, over thunder road. Thunder was his engine, and white lightning was his load. Moonshine, moonshine, to quench the devil's thirst. The law, they never got him. Cause the devil got him first. The 1958 movie Thunder Road, starring Robert Mitchum, epitomized our glorification of running shine. In this movie, war vet Lucas Doolin, played by Mitchum, works in the family business dealing moonshine. He delivers the illegal liquor that his father distills across Kentucky and Tennessee. Lucas rides around in his 1957 Ford Fairlane 500 two-door sedan, getting into bad fixes with some bad people. Throughout the film, there is a stream of government raids working to dismantle the Doolin family business. They try to wait out the government, but Lucas is forced to throw caution to the wind and make one last ride down on Thunder Road. Thunder Road was loosely based in reality, the story of a moonshine runner in 1952 who crashed to a deathly end on Kingston Pike in Knoxville, Tennessee. Evidently, the incident was either witnessed or passed on to Mitchum, inspiring the movie. Slim Merritt, my great-grandfather, cab operator and moonshine runner, predates Thunder Road by 20 years. I believe that Slim was a Lucas Doolin sort of character, staying one step ahead of the law, or should I say, one foot in the grave. Slim ran his business during Prohibition. Dangerous, yes, but he had a wife and three kids to care for. During those times, you did what you had to in order to survive. Just a note. My research has led me to believe that though he operated during post-prohibition, the county he lived and operated in still illegalized alcohol. Tennessee left it up to the counties to determine whether or not they'd lift prohibition. Warren County voted on it a week after Slim died. Slim was apparently politically involved as well. In an article from the Chattanooga Daily Times dated September 25, 1932, Republicans and Warren select Boyd Chairman. I learned he was a member of the Republican Executive Committee. This gives us some insight into how much he cared about his community politically, even during a time of hardship. The title for this episode is a reference to the conservative American radio broadcaster at ABC News Radio. Paul Harvey's broadcast would always conclude with the tagline, The Rest of the Story. Harvey's broadcast reaches many as 24 million people each week. Though I've decided to start off this podcast at the moment of his death, the events that followed his death are just as disturbing. Whoever was behind Slim's death was an absolutely sick individual. 
For this episode, my father and I sit down and discuss some of what happened. He relays to me as much as he can remember as it was told to him. I do know some other things I, that, that my dad had told me. He's referring to how Slim died. Pa Dude never told him the story directly. I was not told that story. Uh, I'd heard it through Granny, uh, but I'd not heard that through Daddy. Okay. Um, I, I, I had heard, you know, that, that he was a taxi operator and that uh, he did bootleg whiskey. Um, I, I know that, and I'm, I remember Dad telling me that when he was younger, a lot of the black men in town would say, "Oh, you're you're Slim's boy, aren't you?" Uh, they knew they knew my grandpa very well. Of course, uh, he died in '37, so my dad did not know him at all. But I I knew his daddy, which was my great-grandfather, and his, his mother, which was my great-grandmother, and they were, uh, Oscar Payton and Joe Sietta. And I knew them. Um, I actually lived with them for a, a time uh, while they were building the basement uh, across the road where Granny lives at today. <clears throat> so I, I know Pa and Ma and remember them very well. And Granny said that they didn't—they didn't talk about it. No, um, I've never heard anything, even that Daddy had related uh, that that Pa or Ma either one had said anything about it. Um, of course, that was a era they they had moved up from Katy Fork River. He and his brother and about 1915, mm -hmm. and settled over around uh, uh, Faulkner Springs. Mm -hmm. And then Pa had bought the farm and moved up where the nursery and the office and where Granny lives uh, about 1918 is when he actually moved in there. And I'm not sure exactly what time that uh, my grandfather, Slim, built a house which was just up the road going towards McMinnville uh, across from Minnie Whiteacre's house. Uh, there, I remember the, the old garage and shed there, and I remember the barn which uh, existed there uh, when I was real little. Uh, it actually, the barn burnt down, but the garage and and kind of the uh, smokehouse or whatever, it stood for probably in the 80s before it was taken down. Um, I, you know, I, I don't know exactly how long he and uh, Lillian were married, but I think... Uh, I think Sonny was the oldest, and uh, he was six. He was six, so they must have married sometime in the twenties. 
Of course, prohibition and basically started all this is what what happened and and of course farm life and there was no quote social uh security or any kind of welfare back then in those days you either worked and earned a living or you went hungry yeah and of course he having three young uh children and farming a very poor farm uh uh, the farm where the nursery is today is a very very poor farm very uh it wasn't a rich, fertile uh, soils like where they moved off the river. Uh, that, that was very uh, rich and fertile down there, and it was very easy to to grow crops there. Where uh, where we live at today is, is not not that same type of soil and stuff. So they done what they could to survive. I'm sure. Uh, I remember my daddy telling that my my great grandpa and Slim, my grandpa, would hew cross ties out of the woods by hand, and that Pa could actually carry a green cross tie out of the woods on his shoulder. So, you know, they were they were tough individuals. Man. Both both were very tough individuals. Just to put this in perspective, a green, as in a freshly cut wood railroad tie, would weigh in at 250 pounds. Also, take into account that none of that area is flat. Although his father never mentioned the death of Slim, he did mention this story to my dad. I do know that uh, back to the time of his death that my daddy referred, relate to me that either the sheriff confiscated, and I'm not sure, I always thought it was the sheriff, uh, confiscated both vehicles that uh, were left to Lillian and the, the boys. He come in after Slim's death, Otis's death, he come in and confiscated both those vehicles. I scoured through countless articles of the McMinnville local newspaper, the Southern Standard. I couldn't find any articles or gossip columns that even mentioned a fire or vehicle confiscation. At the time, each community designated a rider for that area. So if someone didn't want something talked about, I'm guessing it probably didn't get published. This leads us to the question, where did the taxi go? I emailed the Department of Safety. They directed me to the Department of Revenue and then they said to contact the local department of title and registration. I called them only to find out they don't keep records past five years. And my dad told me that uh, one of the vehicles was driven 
by him for several years after that. Uh, you know, and you think about that, that's, that's uh, a very cruel thing to do to uh, a, a widow and three young children to actually come in and confiscate their means of transportation uh, for whatever reason and leave them basically destitute. Uh, you know, the, I do not know how quickly after that uh, their house burnt. And so uh, that was another thing. I do not know uh, anything about that. I don't know if someone burned it, uh, if it was an accident or anything, because my dad never, never said, never knew, I don't think, anything about that. Again, let's lay this all out. It's the Great Depression, and World War II was just about to change the entire country. Slim dies, and the next thing you know, his vehicles, including his taxi, are confiscated by law enforcement. The house mysteriously catches fire. My great-grandmother Lillian, a stay-at-home mother with no income of her own, is now suddenly the sole provider for three young boys. Yes, and of course, there, there again, you're also in the, the Depression, the results of the Depression, that, that era there. And then right after the Depression, you fall into the war, and uh, the war uh, had a lot of restrictions, a lot of uh, uh, limitations. You just... You couldn't buy all the coffee that you wanted to buy. I remember uh, Daddy talking about, of course, they were like us. They spent a lot of time in the creek. And Daddy said one one time he was down there, and this was during wartime, uh, and found several bags, like a couple hundred pounds of coffee. And of course, Paul called it up to yeah. the to the house. But see, coffee was rationed. Yeah. There was all sorts of rations at that time. So that was just like a, a, a finding gold to, yeah. to find that. And that was something that helped them during that time, you know, just Lillian was falling apart as was the world around her. Now, we haven't really spoken of Lillian, but my dad recalls a story about her. Oh, yes, I remember Lillian very well. Uh, uh, we, When we would go up, we'd stay in the house with her, and um, she died when I was probably nine. Yeah, 19, or January 8, 1969. Well, I was eight, actually, and and I actually remember uh, probably when I was six. I'm thinking about six. We were up there, and she bought us all bicycles. Hmm. She bought Daryl and myself. Uh, they were, I want to say, twenty inch or twenty four inch. Bicycles. Of course, we were little, and 
we wore those bicycles out. We rode those things. I, I, I remember riding that bicycle until uh, I was like 12 or 13 years old. And it was wore out. The wheels would wobble and everything. We Man. we wore those bicycles out. Yeah, we weren't big enough to get on them and ride them when we first got them. We had to get on a hill and kind of jump on <laughs> as get a running start and jump on it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. This next clip you're going to hear is a story passed down to my dad about a fateful event involving my pa dude's relatives soon after Slim's death. And just to help you keep up, the pa my dad refers to is his dad's grandfather. And I know that dad was kin to the Allison some way or another through his mother. Uh, I don't know if you know the story about that. After, after his daddy died and then I guess... Lillian was forced to leave town or or left town on her own, but um, the, one of the Allison's men come to get Pa and um, come to get my daddy, Uncle Bud, and Uncle Sonny and take them home with them. And Daddy says, I remember Pa standing out by either that pear tree or the ash tree that's right there in front of the office. And he had his double barrel shotgun and he told Mr. Allison not to step onto the property and, and give him a very strict and firm warning. And Mr. Allison did not step on the property. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. I, I do remember that. Uh, so I do not know what all went on in that time frame. You know, the, some of the older people that have done passed on might have been able to tell us a little bit more, but I don't ever remember Daddy talking about and telling anything about Pa mentioning it or any of the neighbors, you know, saying anything about it. Just do not know. Did you catch that? Let's play it again. Lillian was forced to leave town or or left town on her own. So Lillian left town, she took off, dropped her three young boys off with her parents and left with no intention of returning. What happened? Did someone force her out of town? What was she running from, or whom? We'll get into that next time on the Moonshine Murder and Mayhem Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Moonshine Murder and Mayhem Podcast. If you have any information, please contact us at moonshinemurderandmayhem at gmail.com or message us on the Facebook group, 